Happy Saturday. It is May 20th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. But intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally, we are two of your airmail editors who are located in the south of France, because that's right, we have an issue that is dedicated to all things cinematic Hollywood and Côte d'Azur. Welcome to the show. Wow, I'm excited. I got my band de soleil right here and I'm ready to go. I'm excited because, as Ashley noted, it's the South of France issue this week, which coincides not only with the Cannes Film Festival, but with a star-studded dinner that Graydon Carter, our co-editor-in-chief, will be co-hosting during the festival along with David Zaslov at the Hotel du Cap Rock. And Graydon is going to join us in a bit to tell us all about the issue. And then, since we are at Cannes, we have two great stories about movies. Josh Karp has the scoop on a movie that Dame Helen Mirren once called, quote, an irresistible mix of art and genitals, if you can believe it. Yes, she's talking about the 1979 erotic historical drama Caligula, which starred Mirren, Malcolm McDowell, more than a few penthouse pets, and was written by Gore Vidal. And talk about an orgy of talent. Wow. Okay, so you will want to hear what Josh has to say. And then Sam Wasson has another tale of excess, the story of the five-time Oscar-winning director who was so angry that he could not get financing for his film that he literally threw all his Oscars out the window and in the process created the template for a new kind of indie filmmaker. Can you guess who that is? Sam will reveal it. So it's a great show, Ashley. It's a great little sunny part of the world down there. Where should we begin? What's on your mind? We're going to start with Graydon Carter, the co-founder of Airmail, a friend of all, the ultimate host. And as he is preparing for what is sure to be the hottest event at the Cannes Film Festival, the dinner at Hotel Ducap that Airmail is hosting alongside CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslav, Graydon is taking a few minutes out of his busy schedule to give us the scoop on what's happening this week and why Cannes has retained its mystique over the years. Welcome, Graydon. Welcome, Graydon. Thank you so much for joining us. A great pleasure. So, Graydon, what brings you and Airmail back to Cannes? Well, not to Cannes, more to the this area of France. I mean, I'm not a big film festival fan, but I've been coming here for more than 25 years, and I've only been to the film festival three of those years. But we used to throw a big dinner. Benny Fair used to throw a big dinner at the Hotel du Cap during the Cannes Film Festival. That was one of the more enjoyable evenings of my life at Vanity Fair. I mean, the Oscar party was this big global sensation, but it was a ton of work, a lot of stress. And this even these evenings in France were just sort of relaxed and glamorous and fun. So here we are back again, and we're doing I'm doing it this year with David Zaslav, an old pal of mine. He runs Warner Brothers Discovery, and it comes to be the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. So that gives us a sort of overall theme for the evening. Your affection for the Hotel du Cap is well documented for those who have read the recent book on it, commemorating its big anniversary. But what makes the hotel so special to you? What feels unique about it? Well, first of all, the Hotel du Cap, there's concentric circles. There's people who can who's, who can afford or whose employers can afford to have them stay there. And then there's another concentric circle of people who can put two words together on a paper. And when they overlap, there's just like one name, and that's me. So thanks to Cy Newhouse and his great generosity, I got to know it very well and all the staff over the last 25 years. It's perched overlooking the Mediterranean on rock. The infinity pool was blasted out of rock. It's Slim Aaron's took a very famous photograph of it 
before they turned it into an infinity pool. It was just a simple rectangle. Lartigue took great photographs of the hotel and the area. And there's something wonderfully romantic about it. And the fact is, Americans have been coming here since the 20s. I mean, there's something about the air and the smell and the sky. We don't see a lot of sky in New York. We haven't seen as much sky as you do in Wyoming here. So there's something very special about it. Trivia question, Graydon, have you ever jumped off the diving board at Hotel Ducap. I have, years ago. That's not going to happen it's, again. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's like well, we, we'll see where the night takes us. Yeah, we'll see how much you have to drink, yes. Now, you throw dinner parties that are the stuff of legend. What are some of your cardinal virtues of a good dinner party? First of all, I invented something that I'm surprised more people don't use, that double-sided place card. And the great thing is it means you can check where you're sitting from anywhere around the table. You don't have to walk around the entire table. You find your place. And the nice thing is the person across from you, you see their name as well. And so you know who they are rather than just some stranger that you have to ask their names. I think having wine that doesn't give people a headache, decent food. And I think you want attentive hosts. I mean, hosts are just a good host is large, an active sort of maitre d' or greeter. And I think you make it uh, tough to get in. Then you treat people like kings once they're in, kings and queens. Now, Graydon, you might want to save this one for the memoir, but have you ever had an instance of an underfed actor or actress who may have been overserved at the Hotel Ducap? I mean, have there been any great stories from the archives that you're willing to share with us today? Well, the trouble is a lot of people will starve themselves to get into a tuxedo or a dress or a suit or whatever they're getting into. And they forget that the proper balance between alcohol and food over an evening. And a few years ago, Sarah Marks, who was organizing the dinner, came out and says, Graydon, Graydon, has fainted and she might be dead. So we rush over to this area and she's lying on a sofa. And she's the color of pavement. I thought she might be dead and, and nothing would kill a party faster than a dead actress. So we got somebody who knew something about medicine over it and they slap her wrist and they bring her back to it. She wasn't dead. And so the hotel brings in a gurney. They put her on the gurney and then very quietly they take her out. Nobody ever even noticed it. And she was fine by that evening. But she had like, she'd forgotten the balance between alcohol and liquor. And then, but then also there's just funny things that happen. A friend of mine went to the bathroom during the party, the party part of the evening, and the door handle wouldn't work. He wasn't able to get out. So he kept banging on the door. And finally a man says, stand back and then you stand back from the door. And so this person, I won't mention his name because he'd be embarrassed. He stands back from the door and the man kicks the door in and it's Jean-Claude Van Damme. That's the Hotel du Cap party in a nutshell. And great. And one of the reasons we love the Hotel du Cap so much is the people who populate it, not only the guests, but the people who work there. Who are some of your favorite Hotel du Cap employees that you've known over the years? Well, I've known the main concierge, Eric Grock, for many years, and he's been there probably 30. Michelle at the front has been there for 47 years. He looks like what the, he's the most elegant, dignified looking man. And he looks like what you want the president of France to look like, or the president of the United States for that matter. And Pierre, the fellow who runs the restaurant, he's been there for 30 years and they're lifetimers. They absolutely adore being there. And it's funny, we were there like two weeks ago and the clientele of the restaurant during the non-festival season is a lot more attractive and just sort of genteel like than the people who come to the hotel during the film festival. Slightly rougher, more deal-making trade. Graydon, you've been to Cannes, not just as the host of great parties, but also as a movie producer. And as one of you just tell us about what it's like to be on that side of the carpet or going through that in the film you took there and what kind of night that was. Oh, yeah. No, so, yeah, that was like 23 years ago. 
And I produced this documentary called The Kid Stays in the Picture, which was about the life of Robert Evans, the sort of legendary head of production of Paramount Pictures in the 70s. He brought the two godfathers to the screen and Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown. He was great. He was the best looking studio head ever. His life was beautiful women and making great films. And then he developed a serious cocaine problem and his life came tumbling down. So Brad Morgan and Nett Bernstein were the directors and we made this documentary and we brought it to Cannes, and they really love old Hollywood, the French do, and we showed the film at the Grand Palais, and it's locked tie and everything like that. And the tradition is that they stand up and they give the filmmaker or the subject a standing ovation. They gave Bob a, he, he said it was a 15-minute standing ovation. It was actually about a two-minute standing ovation, which is a long time for people to stand and clap. And he always told me that it was one of the greatest nights of his life. I told him, look, Bob, it was one of my great nights as well. It was just, it was a wonderful evening. And I'm glad I did that. But it's getting to Cannes and then getting back out and putting on a dinner jacket and doing the whole thing. Nobody wants to see somebody like me on the red carpet. So it's all female movie stars and French celebrities. I loved it that time, but I was a younger person then. And I purposely did not bring a tuxedo to France this time because I didn't want to go see any. I'll see them when they come out in the movie theaters like everybody else. Great. And even though you've only been there for, as you note, I think three of the festivals, when you look back at it, it looms large in everyone's mind who's never been there. If you could be present at one of those festivals or one of those moments that you've seen in all the photographs, is there a moment you'd want to have also participated in or been witness to? Well, I think that for most people, the Cannes Film Festival started after the Second World War to go into competition with the Venice Film Festival, which is much more established and more genteel in a way. So I think most of us, when we're growing up, we our image of the Cannes Film Festival is our pictures like Brigitte Bardot on the beach in a bikini, because most of us had never seen a bikini at that point. I grew up in Canada. We had barely seen one pieces. So this was a revelation to a growing young Canadian boy. And that sort of sticks in your mind. And she's still around. And we have a piece on her in the issue as well. Well, Graydon, before we let you go, any other favorite stories? We have a fabulous issue devoted to all things South of France. What are some of your other favorite stories? Well, I love them all, but there's a great piece by Sam Wasson on how Francis Coppola, he had made The Godfather and he was having trouble raising money for Apocalypse Now. None of the studios wanted to back it. So he brought, he came to the south of France and raised the money here. And then he showed a partial version of the film at the festival and it won the Palme d'Or alongside the film of the Gunter Grass novel, The Tin Drum. And there's that. And just the making of Caligula, which was such, I love Hollywood stories when things go really wrong. And in this case, in the case of Caligula, it started off with a script by Gore and eventually it had a director, Roberto Rossellini. And then finally, Bob Guccione, the man who owns Penthouse, threw in some extra money and he directed the film in the end. But it had Ellen Mirren and it had Malcolm McDowell, had a great cast. And it's just like, I don't know, something like 450 buckets of blood. There's just unbelievable things that I never saw when it came out. And I have a feeling it's already you have a rough time getting a copy now. And then it's a whole issue celebrating the south of France at this time of the year. Well, Graydon, thank you so much. If you want to do a postmortem conversation about the party and all the overserved guests, you know who to call. We're here for you. So, let's see how it goes, as long as I'm not the one fainting this year. Thank you for making time, Graydon. Great to see you, Graydon. Thank you. Wow. So, Ashley, hope you got your party dress. I know you've got a party dress. You're going to be in the swirl of it all. Sounds like the hottest ticket. Of course it's going to be the hottest ticket. We will have much more to discuss on that front next week. It's Tuesday night at Hotel Ducap. If any of you are feeling the need to crash it, please give Michael's name at the door, not mine. 
Just say invited you. We'll work it all out. Well, it's going to be an amazing party and a mix of people, which sounds fun and not as crazy as another mix of people that happened in the late 70s when a man named Bob Guccione decided to finance the filming of a story called Caligula, right? Michael, this is the worst movie ever made. And I have to say, when I heard that we were doing a story on the making of Caligula, I thought, There's no way in hell. Caligula is one of those movies that's so bad, there has to be a fabulous story behind it. And we have that story in the issue this week. Yeah, Shakespearean actors, penthouse pets, 3,000 Roman costumes, 450 gallons of fake blood, and Gorvi doll. And we've got Josh Karp here to tell us all about it, right? Josh Karp is a writer, a notorious film buff, and the author of Orson Welles' last movie, The Making of the Other Side of the Wind. Welcome, Josh. I'm back. Okay, Josh. So first of all, I think we should start with the Gore Vidal element. So we really have Gore Vidal to thank for this film, Caligula. How exactly did he get involved in this? So the original idea for this film started out as a very serious historical epic that was going to show both sides of the Roman Empire under Caligula. So it was going to show not just the decadence of the king, but also the squalor in which the regular citizens of Rome were living in during that time. And Roberto Rossellini wrote a treatment for it and gave it to his nephew to give to Gore Vidal, who was living on the Amalfi Coast and had written some historical epics before and had contributed to the screenplay for Ben-Hur. So at the start, it had this kind of very Tony beginning and was intended to be a very serious historical film. Yeah, that didn't last very long. (laughs) Okay, so the intentions were there, but then Bob Guccione got involved. Exactly who roped him into this particular project. Gore Vidal is best I can tell. Bob Guccione was the editor and founder of Penthouse Magazine. And he was, at the time, one of the richest men in America and also had been a film producer. He had been part of the group that produced Chinatown, which was not something that everybody in the world knew at the time, but he had provided some financing and also The Longest Yard. And Guccione really wanted to be taken seriously as something other than a pornographer. So he saw this as his opportunity to get into, like, legit filmmaking at the time. And he came in through Gore. So he took Malcolm McDowell, who they had cast as Caligula, to the Penthouse Club in London to meet Bob Guccione. And sure enough, he said... <laughs> Our producer is Bob Guccione and Malcolm McDowell went, oh my God, the pornographer. So that is where Bob came in and that's how they started to get the film financed. I mean, there's no shortage of talent in this film, although some of it did come from Penthouse Playmates or whatever they were called at the time. But Penthouse Pets. Yeah, they're pets. Sorry, guys. I'm so sorry. You'd think that I'd be more well-versed in my right. pornographic actresses of the 1970s. But alas, how did Malcolm McDowell get involved in this? Malcolm McDowell was cast before they even had Guccione involved. He had been in Clockwork Orange already. He had been in the Lindsay Anderson film If, and he was a big, big actor at the time. And they wanted this to be a big, legit kind of artistic success, historical epic. So they cast him as Caligula first. So he was the first person who was on board before they got Guccione to provide the financing. So then, I mean, Guccione, as you note in your story, he said, this is going to be a cinematic landmark, a la Citizen Kane. And he had these grand ambitions, obviously, that many people do going into films. He's going to get John Huston to direct. He's going to get Jack Nicholson. He's going to rewrite the script. He's going to have all these different people. But of course, he hires a different director 
And tell us about that director and then how things quickly go off the rails when they start shooting in Rome. They were talking to a bunch of different directors. And then Franco Rossellini, who was Roberto's nephew, saw a film called Salon Kitty. That was a, I think the term is a Nazi exploitation porn film directed by a guy named Tinto Brass, who was this kind of stocky, cigar-chomping, political radical Italian director who they decided was the perfect man. It was a little bit like in The Producers when they're like, there's only one man who could do justice to springtime for Hitler. And it was Tinto Brass in this case. So Tinto comes in and it seems he's not very well respected by McDowell. Just take us through how it spins out of control and then where we end up with Guccione outmaneuvering him. Yeah, so... What happened was Peter O'Toole was one of the cast members and John Gielgud and Helen Mirren. So they had this all-star cast. And what happened was Tinto immediately decided that Guccione was the enemy. So Guccione, despite his desires for a historical epic, wanted penthouse pets to be all over the film and wanted a lot of fairly graphic sexuality in it. And Tinto had no problem with the graphic sexuality, but he just decided he was too rebellious to follow what the producer wanted. So first of all, Guccione's idea for this epic was truly epic. I mean, they built a 300-yard coliseum for shooting scenes in the coliseum. They had a pool that had to be filled with pure mineral water, like 2,000 gallons, and drained twice a day. There was all this weird kind of excessive stuff that was going on. I can't remember how many sandals they had made in exacting replicas of what the sandals were like, but they did everything. I mean, it cost a fortune to get everything to be historically accurate. But as the filming went on, Tinto just decided more and more to screw over Guccione. So Guccione wanted there to be kind of his soft focus, kind of semi-pornographic stuff with the penthouse pets. And Tinto Brass would shoot what Guccione wanted when Guccione was there. And then the second Guccione left, he would start shooting what he wanted. So they wrap production. It's way over budget. They go to the editing room. And what happens there? So Tinto Brass goes to, I think, Shepperton Studios or one of the studios in England and starts editing the film. And first of all, the people who work at the studio are watching the rough cut of the film and watching the various edits. And they're going like, there's got to be no way this is actually a mainstream movie. And what happened was one day Tinto shows up. Well, actually, it was before Tinto, before this happened, Bob decided to sneak into the studio in Rome and direct scenes with the penthouse pets that he wanted to insert into the film. So he, who had never shot a film before, but was a photographer, he brought a crew in and they were shooting at night at Deer Studios in Rome for stuff that they were going to add into the film. And once they had enough of this, I think they shot for a month or so. Tinto shows up one morning and his editing machine is sitting in the snow and the doors are locked. So they basically pushed Tinto out and it became Bob Guccione doing the final cut of the film. The final cut, which was a mess. Yes. When it premieres, it's a mess. I mean, you've got the great sort of one-liner that Newsweek describes it as a two-and-a-half-hour cavalcade of depravity, and Roger Ebert even walked out. It gets banned in Rome after 14 days or so in the theater, which is just the kind of publicity Guccione wants to come to the U.S. And then what happens? By, by the way, my favorite description is Variety called it a moral holocaust. Which I, <laughs> you know, when someone is calling your film a moral holocaust, that you really hit some kind of mark. So Guccione, for whatever it was worth, had a really good sense of publicity. So he wanted the movie to be banned, but he created so much publicity around the outrageousness of the film that people were just dying to see it. 
Josh, for a movie that was such a critical disaster, here we are all these years later talking about it. Why do you think its legacy endures? It's a good question. I think it's kind of the reason its legacy endures is because it was so epically strange. This is a movie that would have cost, I think, I can't remember what today the $22.5 million would translate to, but I think it's about $80 million. And here's this incredibly expensive movie made by a noted pornographer starring people who, I mean, Malcolm McDowell at the time is a gigantic star. Peter O'Toole and John Gielgud are two of the great, most respected actors in the world at the time. So there's this just bizarre contrast between Bob Guccione making this kind of softcore porn historical epic with an all-star cast. And I think that is really one of the main reasons that people have been interested in the film over the years. Well, the film might be rubbish, as we say here in the UK, Josh, but frankly, your story is not. It's much better than the movie itself. So skip the television screen and just read Josh's wonderful story instead. That would be my advice. Thank you very much. That's I appreciate that. Josh, thanks for a great story and a great conversation. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Terrific. Take care. Thank you. Bye, Josh. Okay, fascinating story. It's kind of like what goes wrong when you get these tales of excess. And then you've got this other story by Sam Wasson now, which is about another complex and tortured production. But this one turned out to be a masterpiece. It's a film by Francis Ford Coppola, Apocalypse Now. Why did every studio in Hollywood pass on Apocalypse Now? Sam is here to tell us all. Sam is the author of several books, including The Big Goodbye, Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood, as well as Improv Nation, How We Made a Great American Art. Welcome, Sam Watson. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Michael. Hi. Welcome to the show. One of the things I love the most about this story is the knowledge that even the toast of Hollywood gets turned down from time to time. And in no case is that more apparent than in the story of Francis Ford Coppola and his desire to make Apocalypse Now. So as he was trying to put together the financing for this film, where do we find him? Well, let's see. He's the biggest filmmaker in the world. He's made in a row Godfather 1, then Conversation and then Godfather 2. So just as you said, you would think that he would be able to write his way and you would think that they would be falling all over themselves to give him money and invest in this man's next movie. But they weren't. There were a lot of qualifications. No one wanted Apocalypse Now on his terms. And the story of the article is how Francis stuck to it. And with the help of Barry Hirsch, his intrepid lawyer, got the exact right deal for this movie. And also, as you note, then he sort of does what any Maverick does. I'm going to do this myself, right? And what's his plan for this? And by doing it for himself, what's his real goal with this with this film? She doesn't understand. And he's right. Why should the studio make all of the money? Why can't I? What do I need the studio for? I've got money. I've got prestige. I've got talent. I should just go and make this on my terms and collect the bulk of the profits. Why should I split this thing? But of course, it's not that simple. I mean, basically, he wants to own the negative, which is basically owning the rights to the movie, which no one gets to do when they deal with the studio. In exchange for them financing the movie, you turn over the rights to the movie. But in order to keep the rights, you've got to finance it yourself. That's true of anyone. Now, doing that on a small scale is one thing, but doing that on a multi-million dollar scale is totally outrageous and courageous. And the story of this piece is how Francis negotiated that deal, how he got help from United Artists, and finally how he got help 
going to Cannes and putting together the deal piecemeal using investments from foreign territories. And that's really where Barry Hirsch, his lawyer, comes in to negotiate piece by piece this movie. And you could see how arduous that would be for a filmmaker. Rather than one-stop shopping, going to the studio and saying, here's what I need, you have to put it together like tiles in a mosaic. It's absolutely agonizing. And just think, if one of those tiles falls apart or falls out, the whole picture is lost. And in fact, that is famously what happened in the making of Apocalypse Now, that because the movie was put together in this unusual way, its safety was always precarious. Because a studio wasn't behind it, there was no mother or father figure to come in and rescue Francis when things really got scary. So who is Barry Hirsch and how does he make all this happen, as you say, mosaic-like? Well, Francis met Barry Hirsch through Pacino, actually. Barry represented Al on the Godfather 2 deal. And Pacino, as I write in the piece, had script approval, which tells you something the direction Hollywood was going in around the time of Godfather 2. And Francis was so impressed by Hirsch's agenting or lawyering on the part of Pacino, he said, well, wait a second, I need this guy on my team. It's important to say that this really was not done on the scale that it was done on Apocalypse Now. This was a real before and after moment about how movies got made. For that reason, Barry's a hero, a kind of a hero of mine. And we don't really think about lawyers being heroes in the movie business. But that's why this is an important story, I think, because we can say no Barry Hirsch, no apocalypse now. What happened during filming, Sam? I mean, did we run into any more budgetary difficulties or did all the drama end when the film started getting made? Well, no, people know about apocalypse or maybe they don't know to the extent to which the deal was just the beginning of the headaches. You had Marlon Brando problems. You had script problems. You had typhoon problems. You had revolutionary political insurrection problems. You had helicopter problems. You had every kind of problem you could have on a movie, which imperiled the movie at every turn. Questions of insurance were thrown up. It was a miracle every day that this movie got made. And one of the geniuses of Francis Ford Coppola that we don't often get to talk about because he has so many facets of genius is Francis's ability as a leader and as a producer really being, I mean, this is the man who wrote Patton. We can't forget. And the general like muscle that Francis has fighting this almost war is beyond the call of most directors. I mean, Francis likes to say that he created a war to film a war. And that's, in fact, what he did. Some of that war got out of control and some of that war was very much in control. But he had to be a general throughout making this movie. And it was sort of like what I would think of as method directing the fact that he even pulled it off. He lived this movie. I could go on. It's great because you detail in your story, sort of like Patton, who stretched the supply lines and you see in the film that he wrote, sort of kept driving ahead of pushing the tanks further down the supply lines. Coppola's supply line is money. And he just starts off without full money. He just, he's like bullheadedness. I'm going to do this and the money's going to catch up with me, just like the supply lines, right? You're absolutely right, Michael. And that's such an important point about Francis is that he's a great gambler. 
and that he knows the way to get attention is to start making the movie whether he has the money or not. And in the case of Apocalypse, that's absolutely true. He went out there on his own dime at the beginning before Hirsch goes to Cannes and starts putting this deal together. He goes out with his own lifeline and those dollars are ticking away, especially because Francis, on top of everything else, is an improviser. He doesn't quite know the movie he's going to make. He's not Alfred Hitchcock, who has this whole thing storyboarded. Francis is going to discover the movie as it goes along. Now, that's very expensive and very dangerous. But Francis's ass was on the line. And not just that, he had to subsequently put his house was vulnerable. All his assets were vulnerable. His family, everything. He gambled it all to make this movie. And parts of that story have been told, but not the deal, not this can part of the story, not this very seed that started this whole thing going. That's where the seed starts at Cannes. And yet, tell us a little bit about It Comes Full Circle. And he brings the film to Cannes a couple of years later, but it's not even finished, right? He does something equally audacious. He doesn't even have the film finished, but he brings it to the festival, right? Right. Okay. So that's also, I mean, this man is an innovator. Not just what's on the screen or how the movie is financed, but how the movie is sold and distributed. Francis is innovating. And this gets to what exactly you're saying. He just says, wait a second, let's just, Premiere this as a work in progress at Cannes. That has never been done before. A work in progress, A. B, at the most prestigious film festival in the world. I mean, it's kamikaze stuff. That's nuts. But Francis is, let's not forget, the most famous filmmaker in the world. And audience curiosity about this movie has been growing over the years. So he gets a thumbs up in 1979. In the fall, he brings a work in progress, a basically completed apocalypse now to Cannes, and it's very well received. In fact, it wins the Palm d'Or, which, given where this thing started with Barry Hirsch hustling in hotel rooms, is an incredible fairy tale story. I wish we had more like it. We need more like this in Hollywood visionaries and gamblers, not just gamblers and not just visionaries. They need to be the same on the same team. That's really one of the great lessons of Apocalypse Now. Sam, given all this drama, does it hold a special place in the heart of Coppola? What do we know about how he thinks about this movie today? So it was a very happy ending financially for Francis and should send a message to other filmmakers, which is what he wanted it to do, and say, look, you too can own the negative. You too can be independent and make the movie you want to make. That's the big gift Francis wanted to give the world with this movie is to set that kind of a precedent. So yes, he's very proud of not just the movie, but the deal-making aspect of it because it does signify independence. Sam, once a gambler, always a gambler. Here we are 35 years later. Coppola is working on a new movie called Megalopolis, which... If you believe what's been reported, he has sunk more than $100 million of his own money into this, sold off parts of the vineyard for this. Have you heard anything about this film and what he's up to? Well, this is a lifelong dream of Francis. Not lifelong, but it's a 40-year dream of Francis's. And it goes back to the very idea of zoetrope, which is a 
utopian filmmaking community that has gone through various incarnations. Megalopolis is about a man who has a vision for the future. It is a movie about the creation of utopia. And he's cutting it now, as far as I know. And he, yes, he has put his money into it. And I think it's even more than what's been reported. And I know he is so happy with the way it's going. And everyone I could, from having visited the set, I could tell you it was a very happy experience, happier than has been reported. Sam, what a story and what a telling of it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. As we go off into this good French weekend, I don't suppose you have anything you could recommend to us. You know what? We just gave you a lot of film talk. I'm not going to recommend any films this week. You're usually on the theater beat. I have a bit of theater to recommend this week. Can I share one? Always, darling. Okay. I don't think it's come to London yet. I hope it does. It's a play here in New York City called Fat Ham. F-A-T-H-A-M. Have you heard about it? I've heard a lot about this. Okay. This is a pretty great play. And the fact that this play won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2021, despite having never been staged in person, tells you just about all you need to know about the inherent energy behind it. It's a very funny gloss on Hamlet, which is now on Broadway in front of a live and I would say extremely enthusiastic audiences. And it features an all-black cast. It's set during a family barbecue in the present-day American South, but it's not another by-the-numbers updating of the young, melancholic prince's bloody woes. Instead, the playwright, James Iams, uses Shakespeare as this jumping off point to create this brilliant, wonderfully inventive, and fast-paced domestic comedy. It's laugh-out-loud funny. It just got nominated for Tony's, including Best Play. I love it. If you're here in New York City, I would suggest you go see it. It's at the American Airlines Theater for another five weeks. So buy your tickets now, as they say. It's a real, real, real funny show. So I hope it makes it to... Hope it makes it to London, Ashley, so we can compare notes on it. Sounds good. I'm going to see Dear England next, Michael. I'll report back on that. And you, my dear, what do you have to share this week? I blame it on the issue, but I got sucked into watching all these movies about the south of France and you know all this. So I'm going to recommend, it's both a book and a film. It's called Bonjour Tristesse, the 1958 Technicolor movie directed and produced by Otto Preminger. And it was based on the novel by Francois Sagan. Both are great, but the movie is especially fun because it stars Jean Seberg as Cecile, this kind of ridiculous young woman who has a playboy father named Raymond, who's played by David Niven. And David Niven is in love with Deborah Kerr, but they're all vacationing on the French Riviera. There's a lot that happens. It's a little bit of a bedroom drama. And then there's unfortunately a very dramatic ending. So it's a great book, but it's an even better movie. Bonjour Tristesse. If you're not going to make it to the Cannes Film Festival, you might as well live vicariously through this movie. I don't know if you saw the news, but just the other day it was announced at Cannes that Chloe Sevigny is going to lead a new adaptation of the film. See, I completely missed this, Michael. Yeah. This is why we do the show together. I know. I'm just got you back. That's brilliant. Fascinating. A hundred percent in for that, needless to say. Also, like that house that they filmed it out in the south of France is extraordinary. Well, I guess I was reading, I think they just started principal photography last week in Cassis. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. So we'll probably be seeing that later next year. Well, we wish you all a most excellent weekend full of Castis, Pastis, and lots of Airmail Weekly. Michael, will you please read us out? Yeah, just pass.
podcast, The Band of Soleil. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Drew Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us. Au revoir. And à bientôt.